You're listening to a podcast from the 5th Annual Tudor and Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference. The conference took place at Maynooth University on the 28th and 29th of August 2015. The conference was generously supported by Marsh's Library, the Department of History at Maynooth University, Graduate Studies Office at Maynooth University, UCD Research, UCD School of History and the Irish Research Council through a new Foundations Award. Podcasting was by Real Smart Media. In this episode, a recording of a paper by Professor Thomas O'Connor from Maynooth University. His paper was entitled Heresy, Conversion and Reconversion in the 16th Century Irish Diaspora. I'm very happy to be here and I'm going to talk today uh, briefly about um, um, a set of sources I've been looking at mostly in conjunction with the Inquisition project I've been working on and that the book is is the product of. And uh, what I'm going to talk about today are a set of sources from the Lisbon and from the Madrid Inquisition records, and most of them are case records of Irish people who were tried by the Inquisition in in the 16th century. And uh, so about 10 uh, fairly detailed cases from uh, Lisbon, and I suppose about 20 or 30 uh, partially preserved cases from Madrid. So that's basically the spinal cord, if you like, the archival spinal cord of what I'm going to talk about today. Now, given the level of trade activity between Ireland and Iberia in the 16th century, um, it's not surprising that small groups of Irish settled in a number of larger Spanish and Portuguese ports in the 16th century. Lisbon was especially important in this regard. And in the 1550s, for instance, Dominic Lynch, presumably from Galway, was already settled there. Now, this isn't, these aren't people who went over and back. They actually were living in, in these cities. The Lisbon Irish were of varied composition, but nearly all of them, unsurprisingly, were connected with trade. In 1573, for instance, the group included several merchants and sailors with a sprinkling of tradesmen, vagrants, sundry hangers-on and a landlady, a formidable woman apparently, called Catherine Burke, who appears to have played a very important role in the local Irish community. She was married to a Portuguese merchant, Antonio Ribeiro, who made frequent trading trips to Galway. Two Irish tailors were among the long-time residents of the city, one of whom had settled there with his wife and family, and we know that he spoke Irish. A few years later, in 1577, one of the Irish merchants in Lisbon, and a lot of you know this, Colm certainly, lodged the 11-year-old Morris, son of James Fitzmaurice Fitzgerald, who was attending the local Jesuit school there. Later, in the mid-1580s, John Daniel and his wife were running a tavern in Lisbon for foreigners, and they lodged Bolton glass fugitives like the Limerick merchant Patrick Enright. The latter was associated with the Luttrell brothers, Nicholas and William, who lived by street hawking, as did another Irishman called Nicholas O'Keefe. And all of these, in turn, were connected with a man called Francis Cusick, who was a servant of a Portuguese nobleman called Alvaro de Souza, and he arranged for some of them to stay in his master's house. If anything, during the 16th century, the deteriorating relations between London and Madrid, and they did go up and down quite a lot, served to strengthen the Irish presence in the port of Lisbon. So in 1588, the Waterford merchant Michael Purcell was active there, and in 1591, Thomas Burke, a merchant of Limerick, a wine trader, was settled in the city centre. He lived in the Cali Grande with his wife, Jeanette Arthur. Um, obviously, he didn't go far for his wife. Um, 
1591, an Irish surgeon called Morris Daniels was also active in the city, and his ministrations were not just of the physical nature. In the same year, he appeared before the Holy Office to denounce a fellow migrant for, for heresy. So he believed in looking after the soul as well as the body. Another important Irish network, unsurprisingly, was established in 16th century Seville, and by the 1590s, this is well known, there were about 30 Irish merchants uh, active in that port. At the other end of the country, Irish merchants maintained the presence in Galician, Asturian and Cantabrian and Basque ports, uh, particularly Bilbao, where the Dublin merchant Henry Dowdle was entrusted by many Bilbao co uh, colleagues with quasi-legal representative roles in the 1590s. So obviously he was a man of honour and trusted by his colleagues. Um, other Irish appear to have been settling in the Basque port about the same time. Uh, Limerick-born Esteban, whatever I can't, Stephen I suppose, Arnold, made a request for domicile rights there in 1594. There was an Irish guest house in the city at the same time, and of course the Irish Dominicans settled there early in the 17th century. As in Lisbon, these small Spanish groups, while remaining distinct, were connected sometimes through marriage with the local uh, Portuguese and Spanish communities. And frequently, these little communities acted as staging posts for Irish travellers and visitors, many of them clergy, particularly later on in the 16th century, on their way to destinations like Madrid, Rome, and of course, not, uh, not a few of them, for the New World. In wartime, they circulated intelligence, which was of interest to both the Madrid and the London governments. Uh, Patrick Grant, for instance, a Waterford native, worked as a Spanish agent in Bayona in the 1590s. Further east, in Santander, at about the same time, uh, John of Galway, that's all we know about him, gathered information from visiting Irish craft on the situation in Ireland, which of course was very volatile during the 1590s. And these groups also helped to circulate cultural objects, especially works of literature, most of it devotional in nature. And in the 1590s, theological works and religious books bound for Ireland were passing through these ports in some quantities, piggybacking on the established merchant shipping. Now that's just as an introduction. I want to deal in the second part of the talk with the Inquisition and these records which are so juicy uh, for us um, as students of Stuart and in this case of Tudor Ireland, uh, which is way outside my usual uh, territory, but um, these documents were there and I'll talk about them, why not? Now, uh, merchants, Irish merchants trading with Europe and associated abroad groups were the first to feel the direct effects of the religious changes in Ireland and also of the hardening of religious attitudes in Spain, which occurred from the late 1550s. It was perhaps the latter, in other words, the Spanish religious situation, which affected the most. And if the Irish abroad came under any religious pressure, it was to conform to the norms and practices of Iberian Catholicism. This proved unproblematic for most, and it seems that these abroad groups were instrumental in maintaining direct links between Irish port communities and continental Catholicism, I think a connection we've often overlooked. The first Irish seminaries abroad, founded later in the century, were perhaps an iteration of that role. From an early stage, these Irish groups appear to have been trusted by the Inquisition. Uh, in 1555, the Lisbon Tribunal was confident enough to entrust the education and spiritual welfare of a young English heretic to Dominic Lynch, whom I've already mentioned. And later in 1580, the Waterford-born Robert Comerford, 
who was also consul for Irish merchants in La Coruña up in the north, was employed by the Santiago Inquisition in his routine visitation of foreign ships. He would accompany the Inquisitor on the ships to see if there was any heretical literature on board or even heretics. He also assisted in organising the freight of theological and liturgical works back to Ireland. And his son would later follow in his footsteps, acting as both interpreter and familiar or inquisition official for the same tribunal of Santiago. Now, the isolated and no doubt claustrophobic conditions of these small mercantile communities encourage spiteful infighting, uh, sometimes involving malicious denunciation to the Holy Office. So these are Irish people denouncing each other to the Inquisition, usually in settlement of some sort of a personal vendetta. A typical example occurred in Lisbon in 1573, when Henry Nocton, and this is a good story, of Limerick, denounced Anthony Foran for heresy, obviously not from China. Foran had allegedly made heretical remarks in conversation with two Irish tailors, James O'Dea and James O'Flaherty. The pair confirmed Nocton's accusations. Foran, they claimed, had not only compared the Catholic Mass to Anglican Communion, but also disparaged clerical celibacy and mocked pilgrims and pilgrimages, particularly a group on their way to Santiago. Uh, following a preliminary investigation, Foran, who had been bound for England with a cargo of salt, was placed under arrest. Under interrogation, however, he proved rock solid and easily convinced the uh, inquisitors of his orthodoxy. He expertly turned the heretical reputation of Ireland to his credit, describing how the intense Protestant repression in Galway had failed to dissuade his family from attending clandestine masses in the city. Moreover, since coming to Lisbon, Foran himself had scrupulously fulfilled his religious obligations. The inquisitors interviewed other members of the local Irish group to vouch for the accused, and the Irish papal representative, David Wolfe, Society of Jesus member, recently returned to Lisbon following his release from Dublin Castle, obliged, as did Foran's landlady, the aforementioned Catherine Burke, and her Portuguese merchant husband, Anthony Ribeiro. And actually, the Inquisitors talk more of what he said than any of the Irish. Uh, the latter, who was very knowledgeable about Irish habits and character, warned the Inquisitors that Nocton was, it's a cliche, a drinking man <laughs> with a penchant for picking rows. This was confirmed, I'm afraid, <laughs> by the Portuguese tailor, Juan Fernandez. He had noticed... I'm sorry, that the Irish were inconstant by nature, commonly falling out and then making up with one another. These testimonies, and particularly the suggestion that the indictors were drunkards, fatally compromised uh, Nocton's original denunciation. The case was suspended, to be glad to hear, and Foran was released. And normally Nocton himself would have been liable to prosecution for false denunciation, but unfortunately I could find no record of whether or not that happened. Now, Foran's case highlights how vulnerable short-term Irish visitors to Spain and Portugal were to malicious accusations of heresy, especially from within their own ethnic group. In this case, the accusation was false and mischievous and, of course, motivated by drink. But this was not always so, I'm afraid. Uh, Irish traders and merchants in Iberia and who had conformed to Anglicanism in Ireland were ipso facto subject to the jurisdiction of the Holy Office in Spain. 
from the inquisitorial viewpoint, and they did have a point of view here, and, and a point, I suppose, uh, these people were apostates and liable to the usual penalties. Technically speaking, the Holy Office or the Inquisition uh, could claim jurisdiction over faith crimes committed by a defendant in any part of the world, but in <coughs> practice they were mostly concerned with crimes perpetrated in Spain or Portugal. Consequently, for short-term Irish visitors to Spanish ports, public conformity to Catholicism was generally enough to ensure immunity from inquisitorial investigation. So you know what that led to. For the many Spanish dependent on foreign trade, this was fair enough. Overzealous inquisitors could put trade between Britain and Spain at risk, and the governments on both sides of the Channel agreed. In 1556, the Suprema, or Supreme Office of the Inquisition, was instructed by the King, Philip II, um, to direct local tribunals of the Inquisition not to proceed, not to proceed against foreign subjects unless an identifiable act of heresy had been committed on Spanish territory, which is a very large concession to the visiting heretics who are pretending to be Catholics while they're in port. However, I'm running out of time here rapidly. However, for those Irish merchants who had conformed to Anglicanism, and there are many of them, which is testimony to the relative success of the Reformation in certain Irish ports in the 16th century, for those who conformed to Anglicanism and subsequently wished to settle in Spain or Portugal, for them, reconciliation and reconversion was essential. Okay, so if you're have converted to Protestantism, you're a merchant, and then subsequently you need to settle in Spain or Portugal, they insist that you reconvert. And of course you go to the Inquisition to have your reconversion effected. After 1575, these people benefited from the new laxer inquisitorial dispensation regarding British and Irish Protestants, which had been ushered in by a special arrangement between England and Spain, worked out between the Duke of Alba and a man called Cobham, who was an English diplomat, in 1574. Very, very interesting arrangement indeed. These reconciliations of Irish Protestants in Spain were generally uncontroversial, as the 1582 case of Paul Lombard a member of the Catholic Lombards of, um, of Waterford, some of them were Protestants as well, illustrates. Similarly, that of 24-year-old Michael Purcell, also of Waterford. Um, Purcell, who was the unmarried son of Peter Purcell and Margaret Lindsay, had been a Catholic until introduced to Protestant doctrine by his sister-in-law's father, an English merchant called William Stonell. His mentor had a persuasive style, it appears, and followed up his little sermons on Protestantism to Purcell with recommended readings. There was no escaping that. Purcell explained to the Lisbon inquisitors that he had not confessed his apostasy while in Waterford because it was impossible for him to find a confessor there due to the recent anti-Catholic clampdown in the city. Since the news had gone out that the Spanish were about to invade, this is 1588, he went on, even clandestine services were impossible and clergy avoided going about publicly, even in the herbs and tacta, uh, the very, very Catholic Waterford. He was reconciled, uh, personal was, with minimum fuss and given merely spiritual penances. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm running out of time here, but I want to tell you about somebody, um, uh, lots of the Irish 
processed by the Inquisition were actually converts, recent converts to Protestantism, and actually their reconversion didn't wasn't a very long journey. And the Inquisition, which doesn't have a reputation for being lenient, was generally extremely understanding in their regard. And this is a common theme throughout the early modern period with the Inquisition with regard to Irish and English Protestants. Uh, now, this wasn't always the case, and uh, just to show you that I'm even-handed about these things, I'm going to tell you a hard case now, one that's um, tragic at the end, uh, no doubt about it. Um, and it concerns an Irishman called Kavna, if you get his proper name, uh, James Kavna, who was tried by the Lisbon Inquisition in 1566. And he's a really interesting character. Of Catholic origin, he had become disenchanted with his religion while on a visit to the Netherlands where he had heard sermons, as he said himself, preached to the people, probably public servants, sermons delivered by itinerant Protestant ministers during this extremely volatile time in, in the Netherlands when the Calvinist Reformation was gaining momentum. Now later, Kavna, who had since travelled to Spain, he was arrested in Santiago de Compostela with several, other, with several Englishmen and questioned by the local inquisitors. Subsequently, he was set at liberty, but was re-arrested, funnily enough, in Lisbon while he was waiting to take ship back to Ireland. His case seems to have stalled until September 1566 when Frey Jorge, provincial of the Germanites in Belém, which you, those of you who visited Lisbon may remember, um, the, the, the provincial there reported that an Irishman had attempted to hang himself and in a harrowing account, and it is harrowing, the cleric described his attempts to revive the prisoner, who was Kavanagh, aided by an unnamed Irish bishop who interpreted for the unfortunate man, who probably was speaking in Irish. The Irishman later recovered and faced trial. And during the proceedings, his theological sophistication surprised his interrogators. When asked what church he believed in, Kavanagh said, and I quote, Catholic Church established in England, adding that the true church was no longer in Rome, now in Roma, as the Portuguese say. He denied the real presence in the Eucharist and the necessity of revealing, as what he called, the secrets of his heart to a priest in confession. Elaborating on his faith history, he explained that his rejection of Catholicism was not due to human agency, but was entirely divinely inspired. For Kavna, his old faith was a sin, prompted by the same demon who had wheedled him into attempting suicide. These are his own words. During the following weeks, the inquisitors deployed a team of clergy, including a pair of Jesuits and an English Dominican, to instruct Kavna and convince him to return to the church. So he was given every opportunity. He proved absolutely impervious to their persuasions. He was convicted of contumacious heresy and handed over to the secular arm for execution because, as you know, the Inquisition did not have the authority to execute itself. Now, Kavan, I'm going to conclude here because I've run out of time. I'm sure I have. Sorry about this. I, I always make this mistake. Kavanaugh was something of a conundrum for the Inquisitors with his political self-awareness and his doctrinal confidence. In his deposition, he described himself as, really interestingly, as Irish by nation of the Kingdom of England. I've never heard that usage before. Irish by nation of the Kingdom of England. And the account of his conversion was clearly that of a man who understood the creedal distinctions between the contending confessions of the time. Um, I won't go on to tell you another case, but I'm going to conclude now. Am I out of time? No, it's fine. A minute or two. A minute or two. 
I better run on to the conclusion. You shouldn't give me any second chances. Uh, but um, several more cases in that vein. Uh, but I conclude. Uh, the inquisitorial testimonies uh, examined here uh, offer some useful insights, I propose, into religious practice in Ireland and in its European extensions in the 16th century. First, the evidence confirms the geographical variation in the impact of the information, though it does offer new evidence of the periodic and effective use of force to oblige conformity in the towns. And this is especially true of Galway and of Waterford. Second, the evidence points to a sophisticated appropriation of the religious cultures of the time by defendants who negotiated their way between traditional Irish Catholicism, European or Iberian Catholicisms and Anglicanism with impressive confidence. Third, the evidence reveals the complexity of strategies deployed by individuals and groups to ride out the problems of conflicting or divided religious loyalties. And very often for um, these people, going back to what we were talking about in the last session, John, it's not a question of either or. They're on a slipping scale of creedal convictions and creedal loyalties, particularly in the 16th century, something I think we often lose sight of. Uh, this is a very volatile, um, ever-moving uh, creedal environment. Um, practicality, rather than heroism, ruled the day, with conversion... And this is the central point of what I want to say, with conversion seen as a possibly recurrent necessity rather than a life-changing once-off decision, which, of course, it's become for the born-agains. But born-agains were few enough on the ground, at least in Ireland at this time, and certainly very few on the ground in the overseas colonies that the Irish set up. Lastly, more generally, a point he was making to Podrick at the very beginning, the evidence points to the density of links between the Irish and Iberian ports and suggests strongly, I think, that their significance for the lives of the port towns, these links, their significance for the lives of the port towns, particularly with regard to political and religious loyalties, may have been underestimated. And I think we need to rethink the role of the overseas extensions of Ireland in a much more thoroughgoing and um, in a much stricter way. Thank you and apologies for going over the time.